0: Good morning everybody. I'm Harlan and I'm glad you're here and we're going to study the big book this morning. It is Saturday, April the 4th and we're at another situation. This is the date in 1900 that my dad was born and the exact date in 1914 when he landed in this country on an ocean liner called Baltic to Baltimore. So this has always been a very special date in my life. April the 4th has always been a very special uh, date in my life because we always celebrate that as my father's birthday, and that was the day he came to America. Um, We are studying the life of Bill Wilson, and we have been studying the life of Bill Wilson over the last couple of weeks, and what we have seen is we have seen this young man, Bill Wilson, born on November the 26th, 1895. He's smart. He's ambitious. He's hardworking. He's very, very much a person who is doing the best he can to prove himself to the world that he was somebody, that he was special, that he was a person that should be taken seriously and I think that if we look at the way Bill thinks and the way Bill drinks and the way Bill acts we can relate to him exactly we all Most of us have this need to prove to ourselves and prove to others that we are important, that we are special too. And sometimes that comes in in bravado, and sometimes it comes in from taking a back seat to everybody, but it is manifestations of that same idea. And even though we are people we often feel very disconnected from the people around us and that is one of the reasons that we became compulsive overeaters is because we were looking for that effect and in that effect Chips Ahoy cookies and and peanut butter sandwiches and and Reese's cups they made me feel for about nine seconds like I was part of the world at last. And that's what Bill finds. He's a very hard hard worker He ends up on Wall Street. We've talked about how he really and truly was one of the very first sort of investment counselors on Wall Street. He wasn't, even though he self-describes as a stockbroker, he really was not a stockbroker. What he was, was he was a man who made his living selling his ideas to other people. And when they made money on the stock, then he would cut it, he would be cut. In on the profits, and that is how he made his living. And now the Great Depression starts, and we see Bill Wilson in sort of a new arena. This stock market, this investment thing is really just not happening, there's just nothing going on there, and all of a sudden, some of the people around him. Are committing suicide. And the reason that they're committing suicide is because they feel as if the, high, the towers of high finance had let them down. And the, the people are looking at this stock market. And they were making this money and they were living the high life and now they've been disgraced and they've been humiliated and they often have to go back and tell their wives and their children and their families that they have been ruined and that they are no longer the big shots that having all this money would point to. And so their value was was very barometric to how much money they had. But Bill Wilson says he wouldn't kill himself. He went back to the bar. Why did he go back to the bar? See, without knowing it, without knowing it intellectually, Bill Wilson knows that by returning to the liquor in the bar, that it will give him this effect, and it will make all this reality of the horror that's going on around him disappear. Can I relate to the way Bill thinks? Can I relate to the things that Bill is going through, especially with coronavirus right now? you bet I can and unfortunately I have taken more calls than I want to say on this line over the last week since we have met yet since we met last week I have taken more calls from people that are in trouble with food that weren't a week or two ago than I care to even talk about and one of the things is is that people all around us are are in this situation and what it tells us in the big book is we avoid the manufacture of misery that we cannot carry the troubles of the world on our shoulders so we know as recovering people that all we need to do today is work the steps and all we need to do today is carry the message to the still suffering person and we're going to be okay. When all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic. will save the day. And Bill hasn't come to that in the book yet, but he's going to come to that before we're done with the chapter, which we won't finish today, obviously. Where we're going to start today has a backstory. And I told you last week the backstory at the end of our session, but for the people that are not with us, or excuse me, that were not with us last week, and for the people who need a little bit of review, because sometimes I need a little bit of a review, please bear with me because I'm going to go through the backstory here again. We're going to be at the bottom of page four. But before we read that paragraph, what I want to remind you of is that Lois Wilson suffered a couple of what's called ectopic pregnancies. And in ectopic pregnancy, often the bleeding can be quite profuse. And in the bleeding of the second of the ectopic pregnancies, Lois Wilson calls her father Dr. Burnham. And Dr. Burnham was a gynecologist, he was a surgeon and he was also a genetics doctor which wasn't uh, as prevalent uh, then as, as it is today. But he was an early genetics doctor, a gynecologist and a surgeon. And some of you are old enough to remember, I know I'm old enough to remember this, that when a doctor got a call from your mom or your dad or whomever, that you were sick the doctor actually came to your house now if you're too young to remember that uh, trust me there are people on this line this morning that indeed are not and we remember when doctors had their own license plate MD license plate so they could park illegally to come to your house and to see what was wrong with you and that's how that's how you saw the doctor was he came to you or she came to you Well, anyway, Dr. Burnham comes, and it's about 6 o'clock in the evening, and he leaves a note on the kitchen table. Bill, I'm taking Lois to the hospital. She's bleeding very profusely. I cannot get the bleeding to stop. Please come as soon as you get the note. This is at about 6, 7 o'clock in the evening. 9 o'clock the next morning nine o'clock the next morning Bill Wilson stumbles into the hospital. He has obviously been drunk the entire night. He obviously has peed in his pants. He obviously has vomited several times during the night. He's obviously wearing the same clothing that he wore the day before. He smells Horrible. He hasn't brushed his teeth. He hasn't showered. He hasn't changed his clothes. His hair is matty and dirty. He has stubble all over his face. He hasn't shaved. And he comes into the hospital about nine o'clock the next morning. Now, there was an instruction, as the time wore on and on and on, there was an instruction in Lois Wilson's room that the nurses dare not let anybody into her room without seeing Dr. Burnham first. And Dr. Burnham is called at nine ten o'clock the next morning to inform him that his son-in-law is here. He comes and meets Bill, sees Bill in the hospital, and Bill smells, and he's dirty, and he's drunk. And Lois Wilson's father, Dr. Burnham, reads him the riot act, and he says to him, You're nothing but a bum. You think you're so special because you bought my daughter a fur coat, or you bought her dresses, or you bought her a piano. I think you're a bum. And I've always thought that you were, I've never thought you were good enough for my daughter. He said, look at you. He said, I had to do a hysterectomy. I had to have a hysterectomy performed on my daughter yesterday. She will never have children. She is beside herself with grief. We could not get the bleeding to stop. And now my Lois, who always wanted to have children, now cannot have them. And where were you? and Bill is listening to this, and he wishes that it was different because he loves Lois very much, and he and Lois want to have children, but they can't now. That dream of having kids is taken away from them, and they had been living on Park Avenue, and they had been living the high life. Now they can't live on Park Avenue anymore, and they're moving to Brooklyn, 182 Clinton Street, Julie R and I and Kelly S, who lives in Oklahoma, we went there together, and John and, and Harriet and Roanne, I think, was with us too. And I think we all went yeah, you know, we all went to 182 Clinton Street. and at 182, Clinton Street was where the Burnhams lived in Brooklyn, across the river from Manhattan. Now let's kind of set that scene that Bill Wilson is going now to live with people who really don't want him. The only thing that's saving his skin is that they have what's called a mother-in-law apartment in the unit. And a mother-in-law apartment is is a name for an apartment within the apartment that has its own kitchen, its own bathrooms, its own facilities so that someone could board with you while you lived in the main area. And this is where Bill is, is pulling up in front of. It is now a, an afternoon and let's pick it up on the bottom of page 4. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Now I'm going to stop here for just a minute cause I again want to set the scene with you. The Burnhams do not like Bill. I've made that pretty clear. Now their wayward son-in-law gets a job and he can't even keep the job because he's street fighting with a taxi driver. This is kind of a story within the story. He's drunk. He gets in the cab. In Manhattan, the cabbie takes him to 182 Clinton Street, and Bill doesn't have the fare. And the cab driver's got a family, too. And the cab driver has rent to pay, too. And the cab driver has to pay his nut on that cab, too. And he says to Bill Wilson, what the heck is wrong with you? How could you let me, you had me pick you up in Manhattan, now I'm driving all the way to Brooklyn, and you never said a word that you don't have any money on you, now you're telling me that when you go upstairs, they're going to give you the money and now no one's home? So they start pushing one another. They start fist fighting with one another. It gets back to Bill's employer and he loses his job. This is not the kind of thing Bill wants his in-laws or anybody to find out. So can I relate to Bill Wilson? Do I relate to the way Bill thinks? Do I relate to the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization that his progressive alcoholism is taking him through? And remember over the last couple of weeks that we've been studying Bill Wilson's story that one of the factors that we're closest closely looking at Is the progressive nature of the illness. Bill is a peaceful kind man. Now his alcoholism is causing him to brawl with taxi drivers on Clinton Street in Brooklyn. Can I relate to the progressive nature of Bill's alcoholism? You bet I can. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. And there were years and years and years of my life, more than five, where I was eating compulsively every minute of every day. In the 70s, I had a food habit of about 100 to $150 a day. In the 70s not a cocaine habit not a heroin habit not a hooker habit not a gambling habit a food habit of a hundred to a hundred and fifty dollars a day my wife began to work in a department store coming home exhausted to find me drunk let's stop right there for just a minute now let me set the scene for you again The world that we're living in today in 2020 is not the world of of the 1930s. The 1930s, men went to work, they put on a tie or they put on a uniform or they put on whatever and they went to a job and they brought home their check and they lived according to their means whether they were teachers, whether they were bus drivers, whether they were auto mechanics, what didn't matter what you were, men worked. Women historically did not. Some were secretaries, some were teachers, some were what have you, clerks in retail stores. Now Lois is working at Macy's in in Manhattan as an interior decorator. She's making $19 a week salary. She's working about 5 days a week, 6 days a week, 12 to 15 hours a day depending. You know retail, they throw the key away. They don't close. They're open from morning until night. And this is a great source of shame to Bill Wilson. The reason that I want to paint this picture for you is that Bill prided himself, tremendously prided himself, on his ability to be a provider. Lois asked of Bill, please, I'm going to work. There's the breakfast dishes. You smell you're dirty, you haven't shaved, you haven't bathed, you haven't changed your clothes. I'll be back home at whatever time, 6 o'clock at night, 7 o'clock at night, whatever it is. By the time I get home, could you please shave, bathe, put the dishes in the sink. You don't have to clean them, you don't have to scrub them. Put the dishes in the sink. She'd come home from a hard day at the department store. And there he was sitting in the same spot, drunk as a skunk, same pajamas because he didn't leave the house. He must have been on quarantine then too, but he didn't leave the house. He stunk and the the breakfast dishes were still sitting on the kitchen table. Now the reason I want to paint that picture for you is I want to paint the picture not of what the Wilson's domestic life was like, but what alcoholism's domestic life is like. You see, alcoholism was now in control. Alcoholism was calling the shots. Alcoholism was dictating what Bill could do and not do. Alcoholism was telling Bill Wilson, you will not get dressed, you will not shower, you will not shave, you will not clean the table of the dishes, you will get drunk. What did Bill call alcoholism later in his life? He called it a tyrant. The tyrant alcoholism. What is a tyrant? A tyrant is an unforgiving Ruler that knows no mercy. The tyrant, alcoholism. The king, John Barleycorn. These are words that Bill Wilson later in his life will use to describe his alcoholic condition. I wanted to be thin but ate more and more food as time went on. I wanted to be doing what the other boys were doing with girls on the field, on the court, whatever that may be. I wanted to look like the other guys. I wanted to fit in to the desk at school and not be squished. I wanted to buy the clothes that they bought. And I wanted girls to giggle when I told stupid idiotic jokes too, and flip their hair and touch my arm touch my hand and and want to be with me too but I wanted it so much and I couldn't have it because of the tyrant compulsive overeating and the only solace I knew to turn to was more food so the more I ate the further away from me these things got and the further away from me these things got the more I ate So you can see the cycle of the compulsive overeating. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet that I can. Bill and Lois were not in control of their horrible domestic life at this point. Alcoholism was calling the shots. And what does alcoholism do? It's an abuser. Alcoholism is an abusive relationship. And what does an abuser do at, at the very beginning of any relationship that's abusive, it cuts you off from any support from friends or family. And alcoholism was cutting off the Wilsons from anyone and everyone that had been part of their life, including Lois's parents, And everybody in the Wilson side of the family except for his mom and his brother-in-law and we'll find out more about that in a little in, in not today but as we go forward in the story because compulsive overeating isolates the sufferer alcoholism isolates the sufferer and they're very isolated at this point Now, the reason that I'm pointing that out is I want to draw the parallel between the addictions of alcoholism and compulsive overeating. And if I think back on my eating career of not wanting to see people, not wanting to be with people, not wanting them to get a shot at me, knowing I had gained an enormous amount of weight since seeing them when I think back of the things I was invited to that didn't go, I didn't go to when I think back of the shame and the hell and the torture of the isolation that I was in because of a disease that I couldn't control. I didn't choose and I couldn't cure. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet that I can. And let's remember that the disease is progressive. And it is not just progressive in the amount of food that I eat. It is progressive in the nature of that. Yes, that's the primary barometer of the progression of of the illness is how much food I was eating. And we're going to see some of that in Bill very, very soon. But it is progressive in the sense that the The longer I suffer from this disease, the more isolated I get. The more I suffer from this disease, the more alone I am and the worse I feel about myself. I've said this before and I'm gonna bring it out again. I have eaten railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies to kill the pain and the shame of eating railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies. And if that makes sense to you, if you understand that, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, welcome home. Because a non-compulsive overeater is not going to understand that. But before I move on, I also wanna give a little mention here of something that's a little different for me see I ate more as time went on because I am a compulsive overeater of a certain variety. There are people on this line that are anorexics and so they get high from restricting the amount of food they eat and they eat less and less the further into the disease they plunge the less and less they eat which is very unhealthy the further into the disease that they plunge their exercise, bulimia becomes worse and worse. They're going to the gym when they're injured. They're going to the gym with hemorrhoids. They're going to the gym with injuries. They're going to the gym when they probably shouldn't be. And for others still, they are vomiting and their weight is dangerously low and their electrolytes are screwed up. And people are getting on them saying, Oh my God, you look like you're an Auschwitz survivor. And they don't want to face that. Now I've mentioned here about my friend, Lauren. Lauren was a beautiful, brilliant girl. Both of her parents were physicians and she has been in every treatment center you could imagine. And she would put toothpaste, combs, brushes, little containers of Tums or aspirin in her pocket when she'd get weighed so that it would look like she weighed more than she did. And she finally died in her 30s. This is a long time ago when I moved here. She's dead. Did she ever eat railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies? I don't think so. Maybe she did. I don't know. She's not here. I can't ask her. But I don't think so. So the disease manifests itself in different ways. Some people are laxative abusers. Some people are exercise bulimics. Some people are vomiters. Some people are anorexics. And some people are compulsive overeaters like me of my variety. So no matter what, and some people are actually combinations of all of these things or some of these things. You see, we are different from normal eaters, but we are sometimes different from each other too. That's why I think it's foolish when people ask me, what's your food plan? I'm a 65 year old man. What is my, I'm, my activity level my metabolism my age my whatever has nothing to do with you but let's bring it home Bill Wilson Is suffering from the progression of the illness and let's understand again and I'm going to remind you of this because it's vital that we understand it so that when we start sponsoring we become better sponsors that the progression of the illness is not just about how much you eat that the progressive nature of the illness has to do also with the gestalt, with the big picture of your life. And as the disease starts permeating various aspects of your life, like your sex life, what do you think the sex life of the Wilsons was at this point in their life? Probably nothing. Probably nonexistent. He was drunk. He was out of it. She was pissed off most of the time. He was frustrated. She was frustrated. What do you think their romantic life was like? I know one thing. I sure wouldn't want to be in that relationship as it was at that time. So as we look at the big picture, as the disease starts to affect every aspect of their life, we know that the recovery will affect every aspect of life as well and that's why we are encouraging people that we sponsor to practice these principles in all of our affairs. It's very vital information here and you can't really get it most of the time during your first few go-arounds with this chapter and so I'm hoping that some of the backstories amplify what's going on here. That's my hope. That's that's what I'm going for. Let's go to the top of page five. I become an unwelcome hanger on at brokerage places. Remember when we read about how he had fair weather friends and people wanted to be around him? He was the boy, he was the guy, he was the man, he was Mr. Wall Street, he was Mr. Park Avenue. Everybody wanted to be close to him. Now he's an unwelcome hanger on at brokerage places, he doesn't have any money to invest. He doesn't have any clothes that aren't puked on and pissed in. He doesn't have any sobriety. He isn't drawing a sober breath. They don't want him around. And that's where he's gone to. He can't even be welcome in his own element. He can't even be welcome in a brokerage place on Wall Street. That's how far down he has sunk. Now let's take a look at the next sentence. And for those of you who have been to my in-person big book retreats, one of these days I'm going to do a big book retreat or a big book convention and I'm just going to do it on one sentence. And here's the sentence. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. So we're going from periodic drinking. We're going to drinking in the morning and drinking at night. Remember when Bill went to the golf course it says golf permitted drinking. He engaged in activities that excuse drinking. How many people are really that interested in being in a bowling league? Not me. Bowling's all right. It's okay. It's fun. But bowling isn't more fun than eating french fries bowling isn't more fun than eating whatever hot dogs or hamburgers or whatever it is nachos that you might get to eat at a bowling alley if you're in your disease so he was drinking in the morning he was drinking at night now he's drinking all day long so what do we see here we see the progression of his disease see when i would eat a cupcake when I was five I'd get high on the cupcake and I'd go crazy and I'd want another cupcake and another cupcake but it ended after a while because I was five or six years old whatever now I'm 20 now I'm 30 now I'm whatever I am I'm eating every day all day long I would go from one convenience store to the next one place to the next I would go from one drive through window to the next. I remember when the drive through windows first came in. It almost killed me. I'd be throwing McDonald's bags out the window as I pulled up at Burger King. And I'd be throwing Burger King bags out the window as I pulled up at Burger King. God knows tacos or there was no Taco Bell in that those days there was Jack in the Box and there was other things there was no Taco Bell but anyway I'd be pulling up at different ones you know different uh, fast food and I always had a story about a party or about gee I wonder what Fred wanted on his. you know you just better make all the tacos the same and I'll let them decide yeah you know, there was always this party. there was always this 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 gathering of people. There was no gathering of people. It wasn't for me and and who really cares anyway? No one, but I had to make up a story not for them, but for me they They gave a crap right. One of these days I'd like to interview one of these guys who works at the drive-through window. I bet it'd be interesting to see all the stories that they must get from people over the years that are compulsive overeaters that are ordering a massive amount of food that they are consuming themselves, but have to make up these elaborate lies. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin. Now remember, This is the days of prohibition. You couldn't go to the store and buy liquor. You had to make it yourself or get it from the bootlegger. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day and often three got to be routine. What do we see here? We see the progression of Bill's disease. Now let's take a look at what we're reading here. Two bottles of gin, often three. I am not a drinker. I do not have a history of being a drinker. Most of you who know me know if I've had 15 alcoholic drinks in my life, that would be stretching it, and I probably never finished one of them. There's nothing about it that attracts me. There's nothing about it that interests me. I don't like the taste, and Lord knows I hate the smell of liquor. I don't like it. And I'm probably one of the only people you'll meet that I've never smoked a joint. I've never smoked marijuana. My drug of no choice is, was and probably always will be food. You get me in front of food, I'm going to go crazy. You get me in front of that other stuff, I have no interest at all. So I researched this with some alcoholics that I know. I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years. There is no OA in Eugene, Oregon. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. So I asked some of the guys that I went to AA meetings with, and this is what they all told me. If most people drank two bottles of gin a day, they would be in a hospital on a stomach pump with charcoal running through their blood. Two bottles of gin a day from what they told me is an incredible amount of liquor. Often three, got to be routine. So figure it this way. He's drinking conservatively 18 to 20 bottles of gin a week. 18 to 20 bottles of gin a week. That would put away a hippopotamus. The progression of the disease is right there. It got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. Notice he didn't pay his rent. Notice he didn't give any money to Lois. Notice he didn't give any money to the Burnhams for letting his drunken butt stay in their house at 182 Clinton Street. He would pay his bills at the bars and delicatessens. Why? So he could drink more liquor. I didn't have my rent paid at many junctures through life. I didn't have car insurance. I drove without insurance. I didn't take care of basic health needs. I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have clean clothes. I didn't have medical care. I didn't brush my teeth for years. I didn't brush my hair for years. I didn't live the life of an adult for years. But I had food. I had the food that I needed to fuel that insanity because that became priority number one. And that's why I say this to people, don't you dare tell me and think I'm going to fall for it why you can't work your program. You found the time to eat, you find the time to work your program. You made eating or exercise bulimia or vomiting or starving or whatever it is you did, you found the time to practice the illness, you find the time to practice the recovery. So we see the progression of the disease. This went on endlessly and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. Why is he shaking? He's getting delirium tremens. Delirium tremens is a very serious part of alcoholism. We have the complications of obesity. We have the swelling in our lower legs, the edema in our lower extremities. We have the electrolyte deficiencies of anorexia and bulimia. Some people who suffer from our disease become cutters. I speak to a woman every day that can't wear skirts or dresses because she's a, she was a cutter. She can't wear uh, skirts or dresses or anything like that. She has to wear pants. Um, There are many aspects of our disease. Can I relate to Bill? You bet I can. But in the case of alcoholics, they get this delirium tremens, this shaking. And when I was in Eugene, Oregon, and I had to go to AA, I would see these guys, and they looked like a fox terrier trying to crap out a peach pit. They're shaking so bad they can't even, they can't even, you talk about a drinking problem, they can't even put a cup of coffee to their mouth. They'd have a cup of coffee because someone else would pour it for them and they would spill it all over themselves and all over somebody else because they couldn't get it to their mouth. Some poor soul, some alcoholic would hold the cup and they would drink as the other person held it to their mouth. And I saw a lot of that in Eugene, Oregon too, the kindness of one alcoholic to another. But now he's got delirium tremens, which is an electrical interference of the way muscles act. And can we relate with our health issues? You bet we can. The unfortunate situation is the heart is also a muscle. And that delirium tremens can take you out. It can take you out. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer. You imagine how drunk he is? A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. In other words, he's drinking half a a, uh, dozen bottles of beer. He's drinking an entire six pack of beer plus a tumbler of gin before breakfast. Can you imagine how drunk he is on an everyday basis? When we went, we went Kelly and Julie and me and John and Harriet. We went down Clinton Street. We were headed from where we got off the train and we were going to 182 Clinton Street to see the house. And I kept thinking, my mind kept thinking first about all the, the Dr. Bob and, 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 uh, Hank Parkhurst and, and all the Fitz Mayo and Jimmy Burwell and all these other people that would walk down that street to go to a meeting at Bill's house. And then I started thinking, I bet you if these trees could talk, if these trees could talk, They would tell you how many times Bill Wilson walked up and down that street where he didn't know what street he was on. He didn't know what world he was on. He was so drunk. He didn't know if he was foot or horseback. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet that I can. And every morning I would get up and swear to God that I wasn't going to eat whatever for that day and then By the time an hour went, maybe two hours went, there I was, eating it again, breaking my word to myself, making myself fatter, pouring gasoline on every problem in my life, making every aspect of my life worse and worse and worse. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. Nevertheless I still thought I could control the situation and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. What's Bill doing there? He's going on what we would call a diet. He's going to hunker down on the most useless tool he has and the most useless tool he has is his own willpower and his willpower is what he's going to rely on to try to stay dry. He's going to control his drinking while he's drinking. He's going to try to control the amount he drinks. And there were periods he was able to do it, and it renewed his wife's hope. And there were times I would diet down and lose a lot of weight. And all my friends were so happy that I finally got smart instead of staying stupid. That I finally got it. That I had arrived. That I had seen the light. That I had seen the epiphany. And they would slap me on the back and say, Don't you feel better now? And oh, yeah, I feel great. I felt anger great. I felt fear great. I felt lust, great. I felt like killing them. I felt like killing myself. I felt everything much better. I couldn't function. I felt so horrible. I couldn't sleep through the night. All I would do was dream daydream of food and fantasize about food because I had no spiritual program. Gradually, page five, middle of the page, gradually things got worse. Now what are we talking about here, guys? We're talking about the progression of the illness. Things are getting worse. Don't ever challenge this disease. The minute you think things couldn't possibly get worse, if you continue eating, they will. If you continue practicing this disease without steps, you are going to find that the disease is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder because Dr. Burnham lost his practice during the depression. Nobody could pay the doctor. Nobody could pay anybody. My mother-in-law died. That's Lois's mom my wife and father-in-law became ill now also at this time the Wilson's are trying to adopt a baby and one of Lois's best friends was the one that said to the adoption agency are you people out of your mind because you see Lois got encouraged and Bill was he didn't know. He figures as long as he's gone three days without a drink, he's cured. So they fill out adoption papers and they go and they go to this adoption agency and they're trying to get a baby. And one of Lois's best friends, somebody who stood up at their wedding, said to the adoption agency, Are you people crazy? You're going to give them a baby? Do you realize this man is a fall-down drunk? Do you realize this man can't, doesn't, he can't go a day without drinking liquor and they never got the baby. Things were terrible in their life at this point and what happened is all of a sudden in 1932, well, I'll let the book talk about it. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point of 1932. I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits and then I went on a prodigious bender, and the chance vanished. This is a story within the story and it takes place in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. These guys in Cherry Hill, New Jersey in 1932 formed a group that had some money to buy stock because they figure it can't go any lower. It's at such a low point right now that we, if we invest in companies that we know are going to be around in 10 years, you know, 20 years, we're going to be okay. No one, of course, could see World War II coming, but the bottom line is they're in, they want to invest in these companies, so they contact Bill Wilson. You know, Bill Wilson still had a reputation on Wall Street as a pretty sharp guy. So they contact him, and they lay the law down with him, though, that says, look, we've also heard that you're a drunk. And they say, if you're going to get drunk, we don't want to do business with you. And Bill's on one of his diets, and he lies to them and lies to himself and says, oh, you don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't drink anymore. Yeah, it was Tuesday, and he hadn't had a drink since Sunday. But he's telling them that he doesn't, you know, you don't have to worry about that. So they say, okay, well, nobody knew anything about alcoholism, right? Nobody knew anything about it. The man says he doesn't drink anymore. The man says he doesn't drink anymore. And then they're in this hotel room in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And they're in this hotel room. And they're talking about the stocks they're going to buy and how much money they're going to put into each stock and all this other stuff and a guy busts out a jug and they're in New Jersey and he passes around a jug of his homemade whiskey and it goes around once and Bill doesn't take a drink thank God but it goes around again and the guy says to him hey Bill i made this whiskey myself it's called jersey lightning i bet you've never had a drink of jersey lightning and bill wilson says hey this is something this guy went to a lot of trouble to make it's gluten-free it's kosher it's vegan it's vegetarian it's It's from a health food store. It's all these various ways that we tell ourselves that the food is okay. You know, what's the latest one is the keto diet. Keto, and when I first came in, it was uh, Stillman, and there was Stillman, and what was the one where you ate like 10 steaks a day? Atkins, and there was Atkins, and you had people eating uh, 10 steaks a day. And they're gaining weight in leaps and bounds and they can't figure it out because the diet says you know you're just gonna eat meat and you're nothing but protein and no carbohydrates and blah 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 well your body needs a certain amount of carbohydrate your body needs a certain amount of whatever fruits or vegetables or you know there's carbohydrate in, uh, in, in a lot of different vegetables some more than others but your body needs a certain amount of other things besides protein. I'm not going to turn this into a nutrition lecture, but you guys, you guys are the experts. You guys are the experts. You know what I'm talking about. So he talks himself into, having a drink of Jersey Lightning. What is the thing in his disease that caused him to take the first drink was the mental twist because the buildup of emotions, the fear, the feelings that he was getting from this endeavor were overwhelming him. He hadn't had a drink for several days. He's scared. He doesn't feel quite right and so the mental blank spot blots out of his mind the possible consequences of the drink. Not realizing that every time in the last 20 years that he has drank liquor, or 18 years, he has been drunk and incapacitated, but that doesn't enter his mind because of the mental blank spot. He drinks a drink of the liquor. He doesn't come out of that hotel room for three more days. He is so drunk he cannot walk out of the hotel room. So we see once again the progression of Bill's disease. I keep pointing this out. And the reason that I keep pointing this out is because I want you to identify and I want you to become better sponsors. Maybe you're a great sponsor, I don't know, but for many people pointing this out amplifies the meaning and it makes you a better sponsor. The progression of Bill's disease, he says, I went on a prodigious bender And the chance vanished. What do you think Lois was thinking when she found out that he had been given this opportunity but once again he got drunk after all the promises he had made after all the horrible consequences he has suffered After all the shame and the degradation that they have been through in not being selected to adopt a child. All the horrible pain that they have suffered not being able to pay their bills. All the times that Bill was drunk at exactly the worst time. All the horrible times that he was drunk when he had promised he wasn't going to drink like that anymore. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. You bet that I can. If you can, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome home. I woke up. I'm on page five this had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then I had written lots of sweet promises but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business and so I did." Bill Wilson would write in the Bible of their family every year Dear Lo, this is the year I'm gonna quit. This is the year I'm not going to be a slave to John Barleycorn. This is the year I'm going to get it together. This is the year I'm going to be the man that you married. And I'm going to live up to my potential. You'll see. Signed Bill. Or words to that effect. He had lots of good intentions. He saw he could not take as much as one drink he was through forever. He wrote lots of sweet promises. I did too. Maybe I didn't write them, but I made them. I made them to others. I made them to myself. I made them to the people who bribed me to lose weight. I made them to the people who who browbeated me to lose weight. I made him to people that were nice to me, and I made him to people that were very cruel to me. I made him to people that cared, and I made him to people that didn't care. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. Let's see where he goes from there. He's making promises. He's doing the best he can. Bottom of five. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. Stop right there. After everything, he knew that he couldn't take as much as one drink. The urge to drink overwhelmed him because of the buildup of human emotion. He couldn't stand the loneliness. He couldn't stand the fear and the anger and the happiness and the shame of everyday life. Why do we drink? Why do we eat? Because food works. Food will instantly take away the intense pain of not eating. And not eating for me, not drinking for Bill, is so painful that I cannot bear it. And eating becomes preferable to where I am right now. You see, food was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. And when the brain sees nothing wrong with what it's about to do, we go ahead and do it, don't we? Because fear and jealousy and frustration and happiness and blessings and joy are too hard for us to stand. We cannot take it and we justify taking a bite of candy or a mouthful of cake. I don't like to use the word bite. I hear it on the line all the time on vision, the first bite. I never took a bite of anything. I took a mouthful to the point a mouthful. Are you kidding me? I was eating so much in that mouthful tears were running down my face because I couldn't shove any more food in my mouth fast enough. I ate with a tablespoon. Just about everything was eaten with a tablespoon. Why is that? So I could shove more and more and more in my mouth. I didn't use a teaspoon or a soup spoon. I used a tablespoon because I absolutely had to shove. As much in my mouth at any time as I could there had been no fight page 5 where had been my high resolve and how many times did I say to myself why am I doing this what the hell is the matter with me but as the food would course through my system I would convince myself that tomorrow would be better, that tomorrow would be different, that tomorrow I would react differently, that tomorrow I would stay on my diet. So I might as well eat all the ice cream now because tomorrow I'm not going to eat ice cream anymore. And tomorrow, that way it won't, there won't be any ice cream in the house. So I'm going to eat all the ice cream now. I have a mental twist that drives me into the food and a physical allergy that sets me up with a craving beyond my mental control. And he's confused. What does he say here? Where had been my high resolve? What's the next sentence? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. You bet I can. He's bewildered. He's confused. He's unhappy. He's drunk. Can I relate? You bet. If you can relate, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome home. If you're bulimic, if you're anorexic, exercise bulimic, Laxative bulimic? You can relate here. There you are doing it again even though you've been told by doctors not to. You've lied. You've told them you're not doing that anymore. You can't explain the hemorrhoids. You can't explain away the injuries. You can't explain away the fact that you're 30, 40 pounds underweight. you know why, but you don't come clean with anything. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective. Seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, going back on my diet. I tried again. In other words, he's back on his diet. Sometime past and confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. Let's stop right there. So he's cocky. He's gone several days without drinking, maybe a week without drinking. He's got the hang of this. He's plugged into a solution. So this is the solution. The solution is I just have to muster my willpower he is mustering his willpower he is throwing the most useful tool he has useless tool at what he has and the most useless tool he has is willpower willpower It's absolutely not gonna get him what he wants. Willpower. And what is the next sentence? One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. Let's stop right there. They didn't have a uh, phone at the men's clothing store. They didn't have a public phone at the barber shop, at a restaurant. They didn't have a public phone at the church or synagogue. They didn't have a public phone at God knows where, plus the ones that were on the street, the telephone booths. If you're too young to know what a telephone booth is or you're too young to know what a public phone is, you can Google them. It'll show you pictures and explain what it is. So it's not anything you see anymore. But he went to a cafe to telephone. Why did he go to a cafe? Because he knew that he could lie to Lois he was just in there to make a phone call and as someone that's just in there to make a phone call he could tell Lois he ran into somebody and it would have been rude not to have a drink with them he was using the phone call as an excuse to get drunk he walked into a cafe to telephone he could have gone to a lot of other places He chose to go to a place where they serve alcohol. That would be like me needing to make a phone call and making sure that I use the phone at Dunkin' Donuts or Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever. They have phones at the optometrist's office. They have phones at the drugstore. They have phones in other places. But I needed to use the one at Dunkin' Donuts. I needed to use the one where I would be in close proximity with my binge foods. In no time, I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. He's confused. He's not sure why this keeps happening. He doesn't want it to be happening. He has asked God on countless occasions to allow him to be sober. And how many times did I say to God, please, I'll do anything, I'll do anything, make me thin, make me attractive to girls, get me a girlfriend, get me rich, do this, do that, and nothing happened. So I stopped asking, figuring God's just going to screw me anyway, why should I go to him with my problems when he's just going to screw me anyway? So here's Bill Wilson and he's beating on the bar asking himself how it happened. What caused Bill to take the first drink? The mental twist. What blocked Bill from seeing the reality of what was going to happen if he took a drink? The mental blank spot. What caused Bill to beat on the bar and demanding more and more and more whiskey? The physical allergy. The physical allergy and the mental twist. The twist has a sidekick of the mental blank spot. So we have the twofold problem. On the mental side, we have the twist and the blank spot. On the physical side, we have the allergy. Bill has gone a long time days without taking a drink. He goes into a cafe to make a phone call. He's drunk. The f- mental twist causes him to take the first drink and the physical allergy makes it impossible for him to stop. Can I see the progression of his disease? Yes. Do I identify with Bill Wilson? Yes. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I drink, do I eat the way he drinks? Yes. Yes, I do. I absolutely do. I told myself I would man as the whiskey rose to my head sorry I told myself I would manage better next time but I might as well get good and drunk then and I did and how many times did I eat to the point of gas and sour stomach and diarrhea knowing I was gonna get myself sick but if I could get a third or a fourth bag of Doritos and they were 16 ounce bags in those days. Now I think it's about half that. I don't know. I haven't bought them in a long time, thank God. But when I was younger, they, the Doritos were in one pound bags. I would sometimes sit and eat three, four pounds of Doritos in a day. And my hands would be yellow or my hands would be red. My hands would be caked with that artificial crap. That's on the Doritos or the Cheetos. And I would eat them. And I knew I was going to have diarrhea. I knew that I was going to be laying in the pectate that night. I knew that it was going to give me gas. I knew that it was going to give me sour stomach. So I might as well get good and loaded on food now. And I did. Can I relate to Bill? You bet I can. The remorse horror and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. How many times did I look at myself in the mirror with my stomach hanging down? I had no male appendage below the waist. I was completely and utterly emasculated by this disease. I was emasculated emotionally. I was emasculated physically. My stomach would hang down, way down. I had two, three stomachs and two, three asses. My legs were swollen. There were dime and penny size ulcers in the back of my legs where the pus used to drain out. I couldn't wear underwear. I had towels shoved between layers of flab. I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years old. I missed out on everything. I I had no dignity. I had no self-esteem. I couldn't feel good. I couldn't feel like I was a man I couldn't feel like I was a human being and I kept making deals with God give me a girlfriend give me a thin body give me money and I'll do whatever you want and all I did was continue to tantrum with a knife and a fork and I was tantruming at God and I was going to show him That when he didn't knuckle under to my demands, I wasn't going to stop eating. Who was I hurting? Me. Who was I disappointing? Me. I know that God cried too. A lot of times we think God doesn't love us because he doesn't seem to give us what we want. I know this in my heart and I know it as well as I know that today is Saturday when I was eating like that and living like that and dirty like that and asexual like that and no fulfillment in my life, I know that God cried too. I know that God cried too because God had plans for me as a child. God had a destiny for me and it was not a destiny of being a circus freak. It was not a destiny of living asexually. It was not a destiny of pain and torture and horror and loneliness and depravity. It was a plan of good. And how do I know that? Because, yes, there are things I wish were different in my life now. Yes, I wish I didn't live alone and I wished that I had more money and I could retire. And There's things about my life that I think deserve a nip and a tuck. But I have a life worth living. And when I walk to God, he runs to me. And when I put my hand in his and I put my faith in him, there is a destiny to my life and there is a beauty to my life that is just beyond description. That I have a life that is worth living today. The remor- back to page six, the remorse horror and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. And each and every one of us have had those feelings in our heart. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street, lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. Dozen glasses of ale my god an all-night place supplied me with that That means he can't sleep without drinking. He's got to go out of the house in the middle of the night Read the words see the progression how many times did I leave the house? when the Chicago Police Department was on WGN radio saying there is a travel advisory for the following counties, Cook, Will, Lake, DuPage. Do not travel unless you must. There is a travel advisory, and there I am traveling down to Al's Al's Fishery on Grand Avenue because I got to have French Fried Shrimp. How many times did that happen where I would get to the place and they had closed due to the weather? Only a crazy person goes out when it's ice and snow on the street. And there I was. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper, the market had go- told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. He's just had six, six, uh, what do you call it? Dozen glasses of ale. Twelve glasses of ale. Now he's going to drink two bottles of gin and oblivion he's drinking to black out and that's how I ate and if we go back to page four and I'm going to stop right now Uh, I'm going to stop in just a second. We're going to pick this up next week. We're going to see how he was making fun of the people that were killing themselves, and now he's becoming one of them. We're out of time. We're going to start with this paragraph, the one we just read, The Remorse, Horror, and Hopelessness. We're going to start with that next Saturday. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to stop the recording I'm going to stop the recording and then for the next 15 minutes we'll open it up for questions. I hope this was helpful. I'm going to stop the recording and then I'll open up the lines.